Our final reading this morning is from contemporary UU minister, Reverend Vanessa Southern, entitled, A Prayer for Passover. Bound as we are in common life, we gather in prayer and in meditation. Some of us are praying to God, others to a spirit of life. Some are praying to the best that is in ourselves and in the world. Together, we cry out our dreams and our brokenness. We pray this day for all who are oppressed, for those trapped in poverty, for all those whose bodies and minds and spirits are enslaved by addiction and by mental illness, for all held captive by false doctrines serving cruel gods, for those whose circumstances have blinded them to larger possibilities for the human race and for themselves, for those who have been crushed by disappointment and loss and forgotten the ache of freedom and hope, for captive and for captor, for oppressed and the one who oppresses, for us and for them for a world bound together in hope and hopelessness, for today's beauty and tomorrow's promise, and for today's pain and tomorrow's evil. We pray for liberation and a rebirth of hope. We pray for freedom this day. We pray for the love that seems its own errors and for a world banished of cruelty and alive to the promise and grandeur of each day. We pray for peace. <clears throat> Thank you, Danny and Alex and, and everyone here. We are, of course, honoring Passover today, and I you know this year Passover doesn't officially start until next next week, and not coincidentally, uh, it coincides with, with Easter. Now earlier, Danny did a very nice job of, of summarizing the basic plot, but of course there's a lot more elements, there are a lot more elements to this story that influences the, the Passover holiday. And it is, at least in the beginning, as much a story about the person of Moses as it is the story of the Israelites as a people. Moses himself has a very interesting origin story. He was found as a baby floating in the River Nile and taken in by the daughter of the Pharaoh. According to the Hebrew Bible, his mother hid Moses from the slaughter of Jewish infants the Pharaoh had ordered to reduce their population and sent him along in the basket in the hopes the women of the royal family would take pity on him. They would, and Moses would grow up in the palace and gain standing and education unavailable to his fellow Israelites who were enslaved and treated brutally. Upon leaving the palace as a young man, he encountered an Egyptian master beating an Israelite slave. And Moses kills him, kills the master, forever ending his life of privilege and isolation. 
While in exile, Moses encounters the angel of the Lord in the form of a bush, which burned with bright flames but was not consumed. Moses is instructed to return to Egypt to petition the Pharaoh to say it with me, let my people go. He enlists the help of Aaron to be the spokesperson in the exchange, and each time, each time the two approach Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart is hardened by the Lord, and he refuses. After each refusal, the Lord rains down a different and increasingly brutal plague upon Egypt, culminating, of course, with the tenth plague, which would kill the firstborn son of every Egyptian. Lamb's blood smeared on the doorways of the Israelites protected their children from meeting the same fate. After the Pharaoh loses his own son in the plague, he releases the Israelites, only to reconsider moments later and chase them with his army. The Israelites, led by Moses, have neither time to take their belongings nor to wait for their bread to rise. They flee southward, and as the story goes, the waters part so they are able to cross a narrow inlet of the Red Sea into the Sinai Peninsula to the east, which only flood back on Pharaoh's army once Moses and his people are safely across. From there, the Israelites would spend years trekking through the wilderness, where eventually the Lord would reveal the Ten Commandments to Moses, marking the true beginning of the Hebrew religious tradition and the new covenant the Israelites held with God. Now, the end of the Exodus story is, of course, the entry to the promised land of Israel, but not before everyone who lived through the servitude of Egypt, including Moses himself, dies along the way. Now, it's quite a story. And like many of the stories we talk about here, it is not a story that was written by or heard by people who thought of narrative like we do in 21st century America. We like stories that have distinct beginnings, middles, and ends. We like linear accounts of time. We like verifiable facts and details. We like histories which lift up documented events. Even in our fiction, we demand moments of connection to the reality we understand, connections to, to world events, to social movements, or famous people. None of the ancient cultures, none of the ancient cultures who formed the basis of our world religions that we know today wrote or thought this way. Myths, legends, histories, these were all of the same substance. Rather than recount events as they happened in the historical record, the historical record being a modern term and concept, by the way, these stories sought to illustrate truths, or at least a specific point of view in the narrative form of metaphor and symbol. Now, it is, it is pretty much uniformly accepted that the exodus simply didn't happen. 
There were almost certainly no slaves in Egypt who escaped en masse. There were no rivers that ran like blood, and the Pharaoh and his army were not engulfed by crashing waters. Not to say that there hasn't been a whole lot of academic research dedicated to verifying, if not the actuality of the story, the plausibility of some of the details. Supporters are quick to point out that red tide and specific oxides can indeed turn the waters of the Nile red. Locusts certainly have been known to swarm and devastate crops. Any number of communicable infections can cause boils and skin conditions and so on. There is even some evidence that when the winds are strong enough and from the right direction, dry land can temporarily appear through the shallow inlets of the Red Sea, only to flood the sandy plain again when the gusts shift. But even still, there is no evidence of any large human inhabitants on the Sinai Peninsula until at least a thousand years after the Exodus was supposed to have happened. And it's generally accepted that the people we know as the Israelites evolved from the tribal peoples of Canaan. It's a region in Israel which is home to Jerusalem and is on the complete opposite side of the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt. In fact, the earliest Israelite relics are indeed Canaanite, which includes symbols and references to the Canaan god El, and their pottery was distinctly Canaan as well, with no Egyptian influence, as one might expect from a recently displaced population. But again, we know that the people who both wrote down and heard this story of the Exodus would have known that the events didn't actually transpire as recounted. But that wasn't the point. In fact, there were several things the authors were trying to get across, but none of these was to tell what we would think of as literal history. The Exodus is the origin myth of the Hebrew people. And what is interesting, if not unique, in this origin myth is that it sets the Israelites up as the underdogs, the oppressed people fighting for their own, fighting for their own freedom, their own autonomy, their own land, their own home. It also sets up an us versus the world identity and uses the literary and social device of naming a common enemy, in this case, Pharaoh as a way of uniting a people. Why else would the Lord have hardened Pharaoh's heart? Again, it was the, the Jewish Lord who hardened Pharaoh's heart. Each time he might have been swayed. Other than to unite the Israelites in opposition to Egypt and unite them in support of the Lord's awesome delivering power. The desert was awful. In this story, the, the desert was a sacrifice so significant that there are times when folks under Moses' leadership suggest returning to slavery rather than continue fending for themselves in the wilderness. 
but the ultimate triumph through sacrifice. Remember that none of the original slaves would make it to Israel. The ultimate triumph of coming into the promised land solidifies the Hebrew identity as a people who persevere through hardship and who ultimately will be rewarded by God. And the miracle of the tenth plague specifically and the entire of the Exodus in general has been commemorated annually by Jews for about the last 3,000 years or so. The ritual has changed a bit in that time, as until the destruction of the Second Temple in Jerusalem by the Romans in the year 70, 70 of the Common Era, all official rites were held there. The destruction of the Temple would mark the end of the central temple worship for Jews, and the modern, uh, the modern synagogue system would, would emerge a congregational system, if you will. Animals were no longer physically sacrificed, and many of the traditions were honored only through the reading, uh, through reading their instructions aloud during services and sacred times. But even during the days of the temple, Passover was celebrated by families and communities in the Passover Seder meal. Now this ritual too has evolved a little bit since the transition to a synagogue-based community system, but many of the elements today are the same as they were thousands of years ago. The Seder is a community meal, intentionally communal, generally celebrated on the first night or the first two nights of Passover. This meal pays homage to the narrative by serving only unleavened bread and other food products connected to the escape from Egypt and the passage through Sinai, recitation of traditional prayers, and the public retelling of the Exodus story. And of extreme importance to Passover is the tradition of leaving an open door, an open seat at the table, and an extra glass of wine in honor of Elijah, the Hebrew prophet who will one day appear in the guise of a stranger and reveal once and for all the truth of the Torah and announce the coming of the one anointed by God, the Messiah. Now, I was fortunate enough growing up to attend Seder celebrations each year with uh, with dear family friends in Michigan, I have to say they were fabulous. Though the traditional foods served are intentionally bland and bitter, uh, my friends at the Mark Ross household were able to provide a bounty of wonderfulness to supplement the otherwise tedious Seder fare. And going to over a dozen of these growing up, I can speak directly about what the Seder ritual, ritual actually does for those who participate in them, whatever you feel about the myth it commemorates. So first and foremost, it reinforces and reconnects a family's identity as Jews. There are very few places on earth where Jews are in the majority, and other than in modern day Israel, these have been limited to community enclaves within larger non-Jewish populations. 
the naming of the Israelites as the underdogs, the sympathetic characters working to establish autonomy from underneath the weight of oppression, strikes a chord with Jews even still today. Even the most affluent and powerful Jews in the world are subject to untold prejudice and anti-Semitism, and as such, many are comforted and emboldened by the trial and triumph of the Exodus. Second, it reminds Jews the world over the nature of their sacred and unique relationship with God. The chosen people is not just a moniker. It is, it is core to how Jewish people to this day view their spiritual connection with the sacred other. The third thing the Seder does, as do many good family rituals do, it connects participants with each other and with the sense of gratitude we glean from simply being together in celebration. And finally, the presence, at least the potential presence of Elijah, a prophet not of the past, but of the future, connects participants not only to the origin myth of history, but to the part of the story yet to be written. So with all that said, what indeed do we, Unitarian Universalist boys for the most part, have to learn from this story, this ritual, this holiday, so, so unique and so specific to the Jewish people. Well, one thing that we can, we can take from this is what religious scholar Reza Aslan would say about really any myth or sacred text. That even when the stories are not historically accurate in the contemporary understanding, they survive because they contain truth. Truth about the identity of a people, the mentality of a culture. The Jews may never have been slaves in Egypt, but they have been oppressed in nearly every civilization of which they've been a part. The Holocaust and the brutal murder of over six million of their number not to mention the torture and trauma of millions more, is only one of the numerous examples of how Jews have been treated unjustly over the centuries. If there were ever any doubt about the truth conveyed in the Exodus story of the people who persevere despite unthinkable oppression, one need only look to the fact that now, a mere 70 years after the Holocaust, the Jewish population is larger worldwide than it was before the Holocaust began. In this truth, we might be more open to exploring the truths evident in other mythology, despite our culturally reinforced desire for literal, linear history. Now, the next thing we might come to know from learning about Passover is that autonomy is hard. Making up one's own mind, tending to one's own crops and livestock, forming one's own governance, these are difficult things. Well, enslaved, the Israelites had no autonomy, but they had 
consistency. They had food, they had shelter, they were not free, but they were secure. Now, we contemporary Americans have a lot to learn from this, as we are often tricked by the powers that be into giving up our freedoms for the sake of our security. The Department of Homeland Security, for example, could not have been created, nor could it have conducted the swath of constitutionally questionable surveillance on American citizens without an event like September 11th, which struck terror into our hearts. The McCarthy-era trials against the so-called un-American activity could not have occurred if we weren't all insecure about what a nuclear Soviet Union might do to us. Likewise, the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II would not have been possible if we hadn't been so, so afraid after Pearl Harbor and the beginning of the war. Autonomy indeed is hard, but freedom is better than servitude. Now Moses never got to the promised land. Sadly, neither did any of the people who followed him out of Egypt, but their children did. And they and their children and their children's children prospered. Now I see in this an apt metaphor for our own work for justice and compassion. Nothing that we strive for as a people of faith is achievable alone or quickly. It takes all of us working together and embracing the potential of the coming generations to enact meaningful, lasting change. And yesterday we saw this truth on the big stage. Survivors of the Parkland High School shooting descending upon Washington and our youth from all around the country, making their voices heard in opposition to the NRA and in favor of meaningful, logical gun control reform. Dr. King's own nine-year-old granddaughter presented in Washington and was powerful. Stoneman Douglas student Emma Gonzalez held the captive audience in tearful silence for six minutes and 20 seconds, the same time it took for Nicholas Cruz to kill 17 people and injure 17 more. Our own people, like Chloe and Miles, took to the streets yesterday to demand a better world with more responsible regulation of deadly weapons. We are all in this together, to be sure, and it will take all of the generations, past, present, and future, to make it happen. And finally, the symbol of Elijah comforts me. And it might comfort us all in the hope of those yet to come. In the story of a prophet not yet born, who will reconcile the knowledge we all seek into the wisdom that might be actualized in society, should remind us that our best days are still ahead, and that we must be open to the ever-unfolding potential 
of the human spirit. So if we can appreciate the truths of the past while anticipating and supporting the prophets of the present and the future, then we will all be celebrating Passover in the most genuine and sacred of ways. So happy Passover, everyone. Blessed be, shalom, and amen.